Well, take your Bible and look back to John's Gospel this morning, John chapter 1. And if you will, would you look there in John chapter 1, and I'd like to read you the text. And I would like to read for you 135 down through 45. And we're looking at part 3 on the first disciples of Jesus. Part 3, I spent a week on Peter and then a week on Andrew, if you've not Listen to those. All of that is online, and I come this week to a third disciple that we'll meet. But let me, this is the initial calling, and a very uh, initial calling at that for these disciples. Follow with me as I read in 135. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. May God bless that reading of his scripture there. We focus our attention this morning on John 1, 43 through uh, uh, verse 51. We'll be looking in the next week as well. But as I approached John chapter 1 and I got to this section in 135 through 51, I knew I had a decision to make of uh, an important one as a teacher, as a Bible expositor. Uh, if you're visiting, that's what we do. We just teach from the Word of God every single week. We'll continue to do so. But I had a decision to make. Do I just run through the exposition? Do I just preach? I suppose one could, 135 through 51, and show where John the Baptist transitioned to what I believe are four of his disciples, two expressly so, where the transfer comes from them being disciples of John the Baptist to that of Christ and stay on the big picture and pick up some of these themes later on. Or the other option would be, do I stop here and delineate the disciples' initial experience? So do you keep moving or do you, do you stop? And I made a decision to decide on the latter. And I decided to stop where the text stops, if you will. And I did so because this is the only gospel that contains this information. What I preached on on Peter, it's the only gospel where that is stated. What, it is, what is stated on Andrew is the only gospel where it's stated. What will be stated on Philip today is the only gospel where this initial experience was covered in the Scripture. So I'm going to just stop, if you will, when we get to these particular men. I'm not going to take you into all 12 
disciples or apostles because the text isn't revealing that. But when I see here, Peter, I'm going to touch Peter, I'm going to touch on Andrew, and I'm going to touch on Philip this morning, and I'm going to touch on Nathaniel, who is also known as Bartholomew, next week. I mean, God, no question, is in the business of developing leaders. We are in the business of seeking to develop leaders in this church. I think about it daily. I think about your children daily. I think about our church daily. I pray over our church. It, 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 you know, just in one generation, we can lose what we've established. And so I think about the next generation constantly. But when you think about developing leaders, God is in the business of developing leaders. And the greatest leader that ever walked the earth, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. But what thrills me and what awes me as I read these narratives is that he uses, does he not, imperfect people. He uses imperfect people like the disciples. He uses imperfect people like me. He uses imperfect people like you. I mean, there's no question when you look at the disciples, they were flawed. They were immature, to say the least. They had a little faith in many different categories. But what's amazing, really, is that's been the way of the Lord in all of the Scripture. I mean, one of the amazing things in the Word of God is the type of people that God uses to accomplish His plan. I mean, just take, just quick scan. Noah. Noah got drunk. And he conducted himself in an immoral way, but God used him. Abraham doubted God, lied about his wife, and committed adultery. Isaac sinned as his father did, lying about his wife. You remember that, Rebekah, to King Abimelech. Jacob extorted the birthright from Esau, deceived his father, and he raised a family of immoral children. Moses, the great man of God, tried to steal God's glory by striking the rock to get water from it instead of speaking to the rock as God had told him. And for that one sin, he didn't get to enter into the promised land. Then you think of a man by the name of Aaron, the high priest, who led Israel in worship of the golden calf and a party that was gross to mention. Gideon, a man that God used, had no confidence in himself, even less confidence in God's plan and God's power, and yet God used him. Samson, who was marked by lust and lust for a wretched woman. I mean, that is an interesting study all by itself. His philosophy with, with women went something like this in the Scripture. She looks good to me. Get her for me. That's what he told his parents. Go read the passage. Didn't matter that she was a Philistine. Didn't matter that it disobeyed God. That's Samson. Then you got Ruth. God used Ruth in the Messianic line, but she came from the tribe and was from the tribe of the Moabites. David, we know, as a man of God, but an adulterer, a murderer, a poor father, a man with such bloody hands that God didn't let him build the temple. 
You've got Solomon, the world's leading polygamist. You've got Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who put his trust in a human king. You've got Daniel. There's nothing really to say about Daniel, but he was educated in an ungodly place and was a great leader. Jonah, we're well aware of Jonah, who defied God in absolute direct disobedience, got angry at God because he converted the city of Nineveh. Habakkuk, when you read him, he questioned God's sovereignty. Maybe the most bizarre one of them all is Elijah, who manhandled 850 prophets, but ran like a maniac from a wicked woman by the name of Jezebel. I mean, this is the testimony of Scripture. God uses people beset by sin, people like us. And when you come into John chapter 1, John the Apostle is describing five men who met the Lord. And he describes their initial experience of these five men. So bear with me as I stop here. Bear with me just a little bit as I stop at one of these features of Peter or Andrew or this morning Philip. Because you're not going to find it anywhere else. So why would I want to skip it and just go to the greater text when there's only one time you ever get to meet people first time. And what great lessons are here. Now we've already seen John the Baptist. Then we begin to look at the four disciples. We looked at Andrew the evangelist. You remember, if you're not here, you need to listen to those. He's only mentioned in three other places in the Gospel of John. And every single time he's mentioned, he's bringing somebody to Christ. That was Andrew the evangelist. Then last week or a couple weeks ago, we looked at Peter the leader. No, no man was greater used of God in the apostles in a worldly sense, we might say, than Peter the leader. He's the one who preached at the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. He's the one who out of his mouth came, thou art the son of God, you know, son of God, you know, and so forth. He's the one who made the bold declarations. He was the guy with courage. He was the guy who stepped out on the lake and walked on water. But he was also the guy that inserted his foot in his mouth, lost his faith, said stupid things at times, and God rebuked him. But God in the midst of it is working through all these people. So pick up the text then, look at it in verse 43. The next day, it says in the ESV, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. I want to lock in on Philip. He became a disciple of Jesus immediately. And as best as we can tell, just reading the text, just one word. Just one word from the Lamb of God, if you will, and it set Philip's heart on fire to follow his master. Now, there's going to be other deepening calls to discipleship, but this is the initial one. It's interesting. It says in verse 43 that he decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he called him to follow him. What's interesting here is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us only his name. That's all you find in those other three, we call them synoptic gospels. Only his name, okay? Almost all the commentaries make no mention of Philip. Obviously, you would agree with me, there's more ink spilled on Peter and more ink spilled on Judas. 
But everything we know about Philip is in the Gospel of John. He's here in chapter 1. He is also going to be located in chapter 6. He's going to thirdly be located in chapter 12. And then fourthly, he's going to be located in chapter 14. So four different times. Now, Philip was not the leader that Peter was. Nor was he, in quite the same sense, the evangelist that Andrew was. But I'm telling you, he's unique. And that is what fascinates me. I mean, Jesus just came on the scene and said, follow me. And then he became, as you well know, I would think, one of the 12 apostles. Now, you know those apostles are always marshaled out in the same way. They always come in groups of four, okay? And they're in every single list in the gospel in the same way. These four, these four, and these four. We hardly know anything of that last trio of four. We know most about the four that we often study from Peter and James and John. And sometimes Andrew is put in that four. Philip always first and always listed in that second group. It could be that as he's listed in that second group, always first, that he might have been the leader of that second group. Okay? So he heads that second group of four. You say, what does his name mean? Well, I don't want to go too you know, long on this, but his name means lover of horses. Okay? I wish I could tell you something more spiritual than that. Okay? But that's what it means, lover of horses. What's interesting, we know that all these 12 apostles are Jewish, but to have that name, Philip, is his Greek name. We don't know what his Jewish name was. He's only always known as Philip, okay? You say, well, where was he from? Well, look at it in the text in 144. Now, Philip was from what? Bethsaida. It says there, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, I just had to stop there in my study and say, what a touch of grace that Andrew came from Bethsaida. Peter came from Bethsaida. And now Philip came from Bethsaida. And it becomes for me a touch of God's grace. You say, well, why? What's wrong with Bethsaida? Well, you remember, tragically, horrifically, in Matthew eleven twenty one, that city was condemned by Jesus along with Chorazin, okay? Along with Capernaum because of its unbelief. And when we were there in January, there's nobody in those cities. They were condemned for their unbelief. But out of that city came Philip. Out of that city, as you can see, came Andrew and Peter. Now, Bethsaida, back in the day, was known as, quote, the house of fishing. It is on the Sea of Galilee. Philip was acquainted with Peter and Andrew, as you can see in 144. And they were involved, as you look later in John 21, in the fishing business. And they were co-workers before they followed Christ. It's just a note here to you. Witnessing begins at home, doesn't it? Witnessing begins with your influence, oftentimes, with those people who are in your own family. Witnessing begins in the gospel, oftentimes, not overseas or in another country, but right where you are. And I think this is going to be our focus in men's equippers in the fall. Men, we want to equip you how to share your faith. 
We want to equip you how to share your gospel. And we trust that's usually sometimes the people that are closest to you. Now, I want to just make a, just a clarifying remark here. The Apostle Philip should be distinguished from Philip the Evangelist and from Philip the Deacon in the book of Acts chapter 6, 5. We do not believe that is the same guy. Now, I'm going to give you a couple statements here on what people thought of Philip. Leon Morris, the profound theologian, called Philip a very limited man. It's kind of negative, isn't it? Hey, this is Philip, and Leon Morris, a profound scholar, called him a limited man. You know what MacArthur called him? It's fair. I'm not, well, you'll see. MacArthur called him the bean counter, okay? So you, you're going to get, you say, well, how did he get that name? Well, I'm, I'm going to show you part of that. However, I would say to you that his life is an amazing study of the highs and the lows of the Christian life. So I take you this morning into the text to you know, to Philip, the administrator. We've seen Andrew, the evangelist, Peter, the leader. For the sake of a term, I've called him Philip, the administrator. And I want to just look at two impressions in Philip's life that demonstrates that the Lord is in the business of developing people. He's in the business of developing you. And he's going to shape you and mold you and take your strengths and your weaknesses to make you a man or a woman of God. And I think his life uh, reveals some fascinating insights into the people that God uses. And maybe as we looked at Andrew, and you saw yourself in Andrew, maybe some of you, a handful of you, I pray, God, give us some young men like Peter. Give us some young men who don't care what people think on this campus and who are bold for you. In fact, I'd say give us pastors and elders who are bold for you in the day in which we're facing. Give us some Peters. But what's amazing in God's economy is he molds the team. As Jesus picks the team, I'm telling you, he picked this guy. In fact, I'm telling you, it's the first time ever mentioned in the gospel where Jesus said to anybody, follow me. And he said it to Philip first. He's going to say that throughout in other parts, but Philip's the first guy. And as best we can tell, at the first meeting, Philip went off with them. And so I want to look at these impressions, two of them. First, his, the first impression is his passion for Christ was large, okay? His passion for Christ was large. It just, you can see it come right out of the text. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee. Stop there just for a second. You say where he's going. He's going to chapter 2. He's going to Cana. Now, in the Greek, you don't necessarily have to know this. It says the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, supplied by the translators. It actually says in the Greek, the next day, he decided to go to Galilee. And there's some people who think that the one who decided to go to Galilee was Andrew. But I think it's obvious that it's the person of Christ. And so the ESV supplies that. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Now, it says there that he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay? From the very beginning, just, just note a few things. He sought out 
Philip. He found him. He invited him to follow. And he found in Philip a hungry and willing disciple. Now, I mentioned, it doesn't directly state it, but he is likely a disciple of John the Baptist. So watch this in the flow of the text. After the day our Lord called Andrew and Peter, the master found Philip. Now, the question would be raised in, back in verse 43, who found who? Look at verse 43. I think it's pretty clear there. He, Jesus, found Philip and said to him, follow me. He found Philip. But would you look over in your Bible at verse 45? Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law spoke. So it's interesting. I see a tension just a little bit in here. Both are true. Who found who? Both. There's a tension in Scripture between the sovereign election of man and the human choice of man. On the one hand, we're commanded to go seek and find the treasure that's hidden in the field. On the other hand, God's the one who's seeking us. And the ultimate picture, we're sought out by the Lord. Philip, or Jesus, if you will, found Philip, not by chance, but by choice. Jesus said, you remember in John 15, 16, we'll look at that later. You did not choose me, but I, what, chose you. And so he found him and he followed. He was ready and responded to the Savior's call immediately. I mean, at least you just have to recognize this from the text. There's no second guessing with Philip. It's not. There's no vacillation. His search was over. The Savior and the sinner went off together. And you can imagine Philip's excitement in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael. And he said, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. You know, I would just say when I say his passion for Christ was large, he had a passion for the scripture, right? Just right there. He studied the Old Testament. Yes, he did. I mean, this, these guys were rare guys. They may have been common fishermen, but I'm believing he's a disciple of John, and he found him. He said, we got the one. He had a love and a passion for the Scripture. He knew of Moses. He knew of the law. He knew of the prophets. He was seeking and searching for the Messiah. And the point being here, theologically, is that the Old Testament Scriptures point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, when you look at that statement in verse 45, it says, we have found him of whom, stop there just for a second, it's in the vivid, if you will, emphatic position. In other words, he not only had a passion for the scriptures, he had a passion, secondly, for the person of Christ. And he puts it in the, we say the emphatic, dramatic, present tense when he went and found Nathaniel. And obviously, he had thirdly a passion for others because he went and told others. He even told Nathaniel, listen, our search is over. We've been looking for him. He's on the scene. Let me bring you to him. I mean, Philip had come to the end of his search. He found the Messiah. And again, no hesitation, no equivocation, just a heart that would beat with the Savior. And so he followed him. And it's often true that when we first turn to the Messiah, there's an instant joy, is there not? There's an instant exhilaration, is there not? 
we tell all we know. But then oftentimes the trials come and the tests come and we stumble and that's true here. So the first impression was that his passion for Christ was large. But secondly, his perspective on Christ was small. Okay? His, his, his passion for Christ was large, but his perspective on Christ was small. Now, there are three passages that reveal his perspective. And I call it small on Christ because it's how we know Philip. Look in your Bible to John chapter 6 just for a moment. Look over there, and I'm turning you there to the feeding of the 5,000. And I want you just here, we might not take that focus when we get to John 6, but I want you to look at John 6 through the lens of Philip. And as you're turning to John chapter 6, don't forget I just skipped over John chapter 2 where Jesus turned the water into what? Wine. Don't forget that he miraculously in chapter 4 healed the officer's son. And then don't forget in chapter 5 that he miraculously healed the man who was at the pool in chapter 5. Okay? So he's seen the miracles. He's seen the power of God. But look at chapter 6 verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, speaking of Jesus, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, you're with me. You're just reading the Bible. Why did he single out Philip? There's 12 of them. Why did he say in 6.5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Well, it's likely that Philip was the apostolic administrator. I think Philip was the one that, that was given the oversight of arranging the meals, arranging the logistics, of how things got done. I think we're well aware that Judas was the one holding the what? The money. But I think it was Philip that was responsible for logistics. He was responsible for the arranging of the meals. And Jesus said to him, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he singles out Philip. And the question would come back from us as to why he did this. And there is no conjecture as to why he did it. He asked Philip this reason. It's in the next verse. Look at it in verse 6. He said this to what? Test him. For he himself knew what he would do. He's testing Philip. I think he's asking the administrator of the 12. Hey, where are you going to get food for all these people? Now, keep in mind, there's 5,000 men which probably means there's 15,000 people if you count the women and the children. And I think that's conservative. It could be that the feeding of 5,000 is the feeding of 20,000. So he asked Philip, where, where are we going to get this food? And he did this to test him. Because look at the next verse in verse 7. 
Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. You know what's funny about that? I think Philip had already thought about it in his mind, don't you? I think that's how he worked. I think Peter was bold. I think Peter was brash. I think Peter was courageous. I think Peter was the leader. When Peter said something, they all said the same thing. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus, but not Philip. He's the administrator. And he said 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Okay? Philip says, Lord, how do you propose that we feed all these people? Okay? How do you propose that we feed these 5,000 men? How do you propose, Lord, that we feed fifteen to 20,000 people? It's getting a little late. And so the Lord says, Philip, how do we do that? How do we do that? I mean, as one said of Philip, he has the mind of a mathematician. He's working out the details in his head. 200 denarii, let's see, a day's wage could buy 36 barley biscuits. This would take 7,200 biscuits, and that would be not, not enough. If you broke those biscuits in half, no, that wouldn't work either. I don't have Los Pepes. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Jesus, this isn't going to work. It won't happen. MacArthur said this on his book on the 12 ordinary men. He said, whether officially or unofficially, he seems to have been the one who was always concerned with organization and protocol. He was the type of person who says, I don't think we can do that. Master, he called him, of the impossible. And apparently, as far as he was concerned, almost everything, MacArthur said, fit into that category. He was your classic process person. He was a facts and figures guy. He went by the book. He was practical-minded. He was a non-forward, if you will, in his thinking. He was the kind who tends to be a corporate killjoy, if you will. Pessimistic, narrowly focused, sometimes missing the big picture, often obsessed with reasons that things can't be done rather than finding ways to do them. That's Philip. He was predisposed to be a pragmatist and a cynic, sometimes a defeatist and not a visionary. So the Lord says to him, hey, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people that they might eat? As one said, that's a beautiful question for a bean counter, isn't it? I mean, listen, beloved, it never entered into Philip's mind that the Lord had the power to feed 5,000. Listen, or that Jesus himself created the world with a spoken word. But feed 5,000? That's another story to Philip. This just can't be done. Lord, we don't have enough money. Lord, we don't have enough bread. Listen, beloved, so mesmerized by the facts... Philip missed, if you will, the power of Christ altogether. Philip was so caught up in the problem that he couldn't see the Lord of glory in front of him. His perspective on Christ was small. He had a huge passion, loved Christ, but his perspective on him was small. I mean, he could have responded, Lord, you did it at Cana. 
You did it at the wedding. Do it again. I mean, Philip had witnessed supernatural events, but his response was, it won't work. Impossible. His faith was weak. His faith was pessimistic, frankly. Green Ho, a commentator, said his mind was precise, methodical, and mechanical. The mind of a plotting, accurate, conscious businessman, if you will. He had little imagination and was slow to believe what he could not see. So listen, he had a passionate heart, but he was so caught up in the facts and figures that sometimes he forgot his faith. His thoughts were pessimistic, if you will, analytical, pragmatic, and I would say earthbound. But possibly that's the case for some of you this morning. These are the people that the Lord's molding. It could be that you're exactly like that. You've come to Christ, but you don't believe that Christ can accomplish it. And the it being your fears, your doubts, your finances, your children, your schooling, your relationships, your future, your job, your grandchildren. Your perspective is small. Maybe like Philip. Maybe this morning you need to lay aside what you think can't be done and lay a hold by faith what God can do by faith. Amen? Some people are just wired like this. I've been around them as a leader. You need guys like this. But sometimes these are the guys who squash initiatives. These are the leaders who only see it one way. These are people who put you in a box and you can't get out of a box. And it's important to have these people. But at the same time, sometimes if they get in front, you may be in trouble. That's John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 through the lens of Philip. Can I give you a second one? Just turn over in John chapter 12. There's a second passage that reveals his character. It's kind of fascinating. I think you get it. John chapter 12, verse 20. Some Greeks. Those are my people. I'm Greek. They were seeking Jesus. You, you know this passage probably. Or at least a statement. And in John 12, 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, okay? So they're going to worship. These are Greeks. These are probably Greeks that have a heart for the things of the Lord as the Jews would go to worship. Some Greeks go to worship. Look at verse 21. They, these came to who? Philip. Just, it's interesting. Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, do you know that st statement in 21? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Oh, what better question is that? You're one of the 12. You say, why did they come to Philip? I, I don't know. Why do you think they came to Philip? I, we, we can't be quite sure, but they came to Philip. You get it. Now, maybe they came to Philip because he has a Greek name. His name's Philip. That's a Greek name, even though he's a Jew. Maybe they thought, hey, he's got a Greek name. We're going to go to Philip. But it could have been that they went to Philip because he's the apostolic administrator. I mean, perhaps Philip was the man with the keys, okay? 
You say, well, what happened? Well, look, it says they wanted to see Jesus. Verse 22, Philip went and told what? Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, I don't want to look too far into that. They came and said, sir, we want to see Jesus. And he said, wait a minute, <laughs> okay? You guys, would you just wait here for a second? Let me go ask my buddy, okay? Let me go ask Andrew. Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. Let me find out from my words to you if this is kosher. Now, Philip didn't do that with Nathaniel in chapter 1. He went out and found him. He had the heart of it. But in this case, he, he waits. He wants to know if it's okay. And um, So again, they, they come. You say, well, something bugging Philip here? Yeah, I think so. Maybe it's a little bit of insight that you have into the text. I think something could have been bugging him. I think by the time you get to John chapter 12, I still think Philip's stuck in Matthew chapter 10. Do you remember in Matthew 10, I won't turn you there, when Jesus said, do not go to the way of the Gentiles, do not enter into any city of the Samaritans, but rather go first to the lost sheep of the what? The house of Israel. The priority of the gospel went to Israel first. And maybe he was thinking in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, Jesus established that I'm going to go to the Jew first, but he missed completely the heart of Jesus. His perspective was small. You say, well, why? I, I think I'm convinced he's going by the book again. Jesus said that at one time, early in his ministry, but his protocol as an administrator messed him up again. He was apprehensive, at least in John 12. He failed to pull the trigger. He was too timid. One said it this way, Philip being the administrative type probably carried around in his head a full manual of protocols and procedures. He might have had an actual written policy manual which he fastidiously devised and insisted on following to the letter, end of quote. Listen, that's who he was. It, wait, wait let, let, you want to see Jesus? You know, I think if it was Peter, he would have said, hey, right now, I'm going, get all your family, let's all go, I'm taking you to the master. But he didn't. He waited, listen, in John 6, back at the feeding of the 5,000, he lost sight of the supernatural power of Christ because of the impossibility of the mathematical calculations. And in John chapter 12, he lost sight of the supernatural message of Christ because he had a rigid set of procedures. That's Philip. And the Lord wanted him. The Lord called him. The Lord found him. There's a third and final text. Would you look at John 14? I think you know this one. I'm just pointing you out. It's the only places where he's mentioned in all the gospel. Certainly, you know, John 14. He tells him that, that he's going to die. He's in the upper room, right? Okay, set the scene. He's on the night of the Passover. It's on the eve of the Lord's crucifixion. And the next day, from what Chris Mueller preached on, he's going to go out and sweat great drops of blood. 
Judas has just betrayed him. And so he addresses the disciples. You know this in John 14 with words of assurance. He assured them not to be troubled. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He promised that I'm going to return and I'm going to take you there that you may be there with me also. You know that. So then Thomas said in verse 4, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then profoundly in 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus was teaching that no one can go to heaven that does not trust him alone as Savior. He's the only way to the Father. Jesus said, look, look at the text again in 14.7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. What a statement. Jesus is stating in the clearest possible language that he is God. That Christ and his Father are of the same essence. That to know Christ is to know the Father. To see Christ is to see God the Father. They had both seen him and known him. So in effect, they already knew the Father as well. It's so clear. You think, well, what else could be said? Well, this in (laughs) 14.8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is what? Enough. I mean, beloved, three years, and Philip missed it. I mean, his spiritual understanding was hazy. It was unclear, to say the least, And I think it must have broken our Lord's heart. Philip's statement there in 8 was a denial of what Jesus just said in 14.7 when he said, if you had known me, you would also know my Father. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. After all the power displays that Philip had seen, to miss this is unbelievable. But Jesus, (laughs) ever so patient. Look at 14.9. He said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? Philip, he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or believe on account of the works themselves. He just gently, just ever teaches. I I think F.F. Bruce, or maybe it's A.B. Bruce, said it this well, of the disciples, and, and sometimes of us, right? They knew him, and they did not know him. They were like children, Bruce said, who can repeat the catechism without understanding its sense or who possess a treasure without being capable of estimating its value. They were like men looking at an object through a telescope without adjusting the focus. They had no clear, full, consistent spiritual conception of the mind, heart, character of the man Jesus Christ, in whom dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, nor would they possess such a conception, he said, till the spirit of truth, The promised comforter came. That is so true. Their eyes were opened at the end. I mean, to think that he looked for three years, gazed into the face of God, and it was still unclear to him is just 
so foreign to our thinking. I mean, his obsession, as one writer said, with mundane details, his preoccupation with business details, his, if you will, small-mindedness had shut him off from the full apprehension of whose presence he had enjoyed. He was imperfect in his understanding, skeptical, analytical, pessimistic, reluctant, unsure. He wanted to go by the book all the time. He was a facts guy, a figures guy, unable to grasp at times the big picture of Christ's divine power, slow to understand, slow to trust, slow to see beyond the immediate circumstances. Listen, beloved, he had a passion for Christ which was large, but his perspective on Christ was small. But here's what I wanted to tell you. Tradition tells us this guy was greatly used by God in the early church. By most accounts that are just historical, he was put to death by stoning at Heliopolis. And I don't know if you knew this about Philip. You know how when Peter didn't want to die in the same way as Christ because he considered himself unworthy. Philip said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner of our Lord, so don't wrap me in a linen cloth. And God amazingly used this man from the initial beginning to make him one of the leaders in the New Jerusalem with the 12 other apostles in the, in the, the New Jerusalem to come. And you know, it just, you say, well, what, Scott, what's important here? He uses imperfect people, does he not, to expand his kingdom. Beloved, he uses flawed people, okay? He uses people like me. He uses people like you. And if you're waiting till you're perfect, get off that. <laughs> the Lord chose this man, and he grew. Listen, I could say the same thing about Peter Bold, courageous, curious. He had all the makings of a leader, but he also said the funniest things ever. No one inserted their, you know, their foot in their mouth more than he did. Then there's Andrew, quiet, gentle Andrew. No fanfare after his name, only three places in the Gospel of John. And every single place, he's bringing someone to Christ. And then there's Andrew here, or Andrew the evangelist, and then finally Philip the administrator. You know, if I could just give you a takeaway, I, I don't want to miss this. Jesus said to the two guys before, come and see. They came and saw. Andrew found Peter. Jesus found Philip. And Philip next week found who? Nathaniel. And so I'm just going to say this. How about you? Who are you telling? Where's the evangelist in this group? And I, I say that because I love you. I love our church. But I don't want to get comfortable. All I know is these, these guys were picked. Jesus found them. Then he went and found him. And then he found him. And it was usually closest. So men, roll your sleeves up because we're going to talk about evangelism in the fall at men's equippers. And we got Supreme Court decisions. We, we got people selling body parts. We have people making a device. 
to take out the parts they want in a body. I'll leave it right there. And you and I are set in the midst of this community to be salt and light, just even as our 12 are over in Albania to tell people who have never heard Jesus, but we got to open our mouth. All I know is he was imperfect, but he went and found Nathaniel. And Nathaniel became a man mighty used of God. Here's the way of the scripture, and I want to encourage you this. One wins, wins one. Right? The early disciples were friends, they were co-workers, and often evangelism happens in those contexts where relationships are formed and made. Here's what Spurgeon said, and I'm all done. He said, answering a student's question, and here was the student's question, will the heathen who have not heard the gospel be, what, saved? Student asked Spurgeon that question. It's the biggest question that the unbeliever asks in the globe today. What about the heathen who have never heard? Here's what Spurgeon said. He said, quote, It is more a question with me whether we who have the gospel and fail to give it to those who have not can be saved. Wow. We got it. How could we not fail? To open our mouth because imperfect Philip went and got and found Nathaniel. Let it be a reminder to us that God's using all kinds of people, right? He uses us. Listen, I don't know what's in store for our church, but I'll tell you this. There's a lot of things we've not touched in our church. A lot of things with babies that we've not helped on. There's a lot of stuff in local evangelism that we've not fostered. And I told you at the beginning, I can't do those things, and we want to be careful. I, I want to do that personally. But we're here to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And I just pray, if the Lord gives you heart for those things, then come tell us, because we want to be released into this community. We have the only hope. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your head with me? I'm going to call the worship team up. Maybe just as your head is bowed, don't know if you're like Philip. If, if you feel like you're like Philip, <laughs> the Lord used Philip. Oh, he loved Christ. We found him. He knew the Old Testament. He had a love for Nathaniel, but his perspective was small, and the Lord would grow him, and he'll grow us. But however you are, the Lord wants to use you. Praise God that he's in the business of using imperfect people. And you're looking at one this morning speaking to you. Lord, we just come before you. Lord, will you just help us? I just am really burdened for our fathers, really burdened for our young people, moms. Lord, in a healthy way, I'm so encouraged with what your spirit is doing. So thankful, Father for what you're doing in the church. But, Father, we just see the greater need of our community and the globe. And, Father, we start that class on your heart for the world on August 30th because we, we want to be used right here in our sphere overseas. Lord, maybe a number of us, obviously, we're here. We couldn't go, but some of these people, Father, help the 12 go. Father, we're praying that you raise up missionaries out of this flock. 
Lord, I'm praying that you'd raise up young men at Kingsburg High, that you raise up men and women at Emmanuel High School, that you raise up other high schools in this area to be bold for you, that you help families be godly, that you help us walk with you. Lord, you're in the business of working with us, and Lord, we're so thankful. Lord, the truth is none of us would ever qualify for this job. But Father, we thank you that as Kent preached a couple weeks ago, we're righteous in Jesus Christ. So glad, Lord, we're glad that we're in the house today. Father, seal our worship, encourage our hearts, and we'll ask you to do a work in the midst of us for your kingdom, for your glory, for your honor. And all God's people said, amen. Why don't you stand?